Um, did anyone actually feel like that? I got an extra hour of sleep last night? Anyone? 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 A couple? D- does anyone get mixed up like I do? It doesn't matter if you fall back or spring forward. You still feel like you're tired when you wake up. Anyone else? Yeah, why do they do that to us? There's a system against us. I'm like, it happens every single time. And I woke up multiple times last night. I was like, yeah, here we go. We are falling back. And that, and that just meant that I am not falling back asleep like all night long. That was kind of what it was for me. Um, it is awesome to be able to be here with you and kind of dig into actually a series that we've been in for a little while now. This is week four. And we understand that maybe you've come in here today and you've missed some of the previous uh, talks that have gone in with this, and we view a series kind of like a movie. So we, we, you know, if you watch a movie and you have to be there from the beginning to the end to kind of know what it's about and all of it kind of fits together, if you go in 30 minutes late into a movie, it's kind of a bummer. So I don't want this to be a bummer for you, so I'll kind of get you caught up on what we've been uh, talking about, and, uh, and this has been a topical study so this is going to be really, really good material for you, but I'll get you caught up and I'll show you how that fits into everything else that we have talked about thus far. Um, one of the, the previous weeks we had kind of talked about just the span of a life and like we have a, just a temptation in our life is to spend our life on us. And, and it was kind of vague. Um, and, and part of that, that talk, that idea is kind of vague. And part of that talk, as I said, in, in the span of a life, we, we tend to think that our life is like, like this rope, like it just maybe starts at the day you're born, but it just kind of carries on. And like we, we, and the, the younger that you are, the more that you think you actually have time in your life. And when you get a little bit older and your time gets a little bit shorter, we start realizing that that, that rope um, is actually quite short. And the older you get, the more you realize that time is valuable. So one of the things that we talked about is just the span of a life. But then also we talked about the significance of time. And we said that, uh, that, that life is actually, our life on earth is actually really, really short. But even though that our life on earth is short, one of the greatest hopes about this is it doesn't mean that our influence has to be limited. So although our, our years are short and in the scripture we looked at, it was Moses and he said, you know, a, a span, if you have strength, it may last 70 or 80 years. And of course, we're not guaranteed tomorrow. So that was just um, something that he had kind of said in this writing, a beautiful writing that we talked about weeks ago. And so he, he talked about the significance of, of a life and the significance of time. But we have to reevaluate not, not only the way that we look at time, but the way that we utilize our time. And then last week, we camped out on the idea that all of us have been given gifts and talents. And just like time and just like life, if we use those things for ourselves, that's actually not the best way. Because if we just use all of our time on us, if we just use our gifts and talents to prop ourselves up, and even in the topic we're going to talk about today, if we use our life to benefit us, that's actually not the best way. Because if we just use it for us, it dies with us. It dies with us. So I said, somebody who, who utilizes their time to benefit themselves and somebody who utilizes their life and just squanders their life on themselves and somebody who just uses their gifts and talents to benefit only themselves, I said, those people act like owners. And an owner type of mentality, and it's actually that, that type of owner mentality is I have what I have so I can use what I have because it's all about me. 
But if we, if we believe that, if we submit to that, that means that our influence is going to be so limited to the span of our years. But one of the hopes of the gospel of Jesus is that we can live our life and not only in the span of our years uh, to, and have an abundant life, but also to be able to affect eternity, one of the promises. And yet all of us have this temptation is to, to treat our life and our time and even our relationships, treat everything as if we're the owner. And ownership is the path to life's greatest disappointments because we know that one day that, that our time on earth is going to be up. And if we've squandered our life on us, then, then as our time is up, so is our influence. But I, I painted this picture that there's always a better way, and there's going to be a better way that's talked about in this text. So ownership, it, it is with us, but it dies with us. But stewardship is the belief that we're managing or stewarding, is kind of a Bible word, managing something that's been given to us. Christians believe that God has given these things to us, that he's given us influence, that he's given us some money. He's given us relationships. He's given us gifts and talents. He's given us a life, and he's given us time. And we have to steward all those things in the span of our years. We have to manage those things because when we steward, when we believe that in us and pushing back on the idea of owning and it's about us, that we're stewarding something that God has given us, stewardship is the, la- is the path to life's greatest contributions. That means that there's an influence greater than our years that we understand that it's not about us, that it's ultimately about God, and he's, He has just given us things in our life um, to, to not only make our lives better, but also to, to bring out the good news of the gospel. So several months ago, I know some of you weren't here, several months ago through the summer, um, we, we went through one of the taboos, the cultural taboos, and we spent about, I don't know, I think it was nine or ten weeks talking about God and politics, and it was, people were kind of nervous, and they're like, what's he going to say? And I was like, just preaching the Bible, man, relax, you know? Like, the Bible talks about these things, so I talk about these things. So we had spent those, but that's a taboo, but we had spent these weeks in talking about it. So I thought, well, the only other taboo that I know that you're not supposed to talk about in church is money. So I thought, man, let's just open this thing up wide open. We talk about politics, and now we're going to talk about God and money. Now, I do so. Not only does the Bible talk about it, not only is this teaching of Jesus referencing it, but also because you talk about it. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you yourself have connected God and money. And I'll tell you some ways that you've done it. You did it when you were in middle school. Anybody remember middle school? All of us trying to forget middle school. Like when you're in middle school... And you, and you saw that, that young lady or that young man, and you're like, you were so smitten by him. You didn't know why. You were feeling like weird things that you never felt before. You finally decided, guys, you finally decided that you were going to start taking a shower um, because of this, this girl. And then you have this opportunity, maybe, maybe high school, you had this opportunity to where you're like, man, it's like, it's Friday night. I really want to ask this, this girl on a date or this guy on a date. I really want to go out on a date or go to the movies or to the mall or Chick-fil-A or Starbucks, whatever. I really wanted to do those things. But it's, it's Thursday, and you realize that you're broke. And not just a little broke. You got nothing. And all of a sudden, even, even if you didn't even, if you're not even a follower of Jesus, here's what you've done. You said, God, you don't even know who God is at this point, maybe. You're like, God, I want to go on a date tomorrow. But I need some money 
to go on a date tomorrow. So you connected God and money yourself. Or maybe you're like me, and I always get nervous. I do my own taxes through TurboTax. Anybody else do TurboTax? Anybody else feel like, am I doing it right on TurboTax? Like I do it every year. And I, I sit down through TurboTax, and it's like the process, you start it. And, and the whole time on TurboTax, you're kind of comparing notes with last year. So you're like, how am I doing contribution-wise? How am I doing with this? How am I doing with, with all my exemption? How, how am I doing with all this? And it's like, I'm through the process. I'm like, Lord, please let this be better than last year. And all of a sudden, you're teetering on green and red, green and red, green and red. And then at the end, right before you hit the submit button, you're like, I don't care. I don't even care how much. I just want to know that I'm not paying. So you're, you're, you're with fear and trembling, trembling rather, you go and you hit the submit button and you're like, you're either let down or you're just like exuberant, like so excited because you're not paying. And what you've done through that process, and I've done this, is God, please help these things work out. You've even, you prayed for a job. A job that would make you more, what's the word? Money, right? Because you don't just, I just need a new job. Like, no, you were thinking about money. So you said, I need money. Please give me a better job. So you've, you've asked God to say, hey, please bring me a job. Some of you are maybe uh, struggling financially and you're looking, currently looking at your bank register and you're like, I've got nothing, but I've got a bill. And you're like, I don't know what to do with this, God. So you're praying through it. You and I have, have connected God in finances. So I am just doing something that you've already done, but also that Jesus talks about. So I'm going to do so. Of course, I'm having some fun with that. But I also believe that this, this passage, it is so, so important for us. It's so important for us. It, it in and of itself kind of sets us on a trajectory. And even if we were to kind of press into this, and as we jump into your Bible, if you have your Bible, I hope that you do. But if you don't, there's, someone, there's some spread throughout the chairs around you. We're actually going to be in Luke 16. But I believe even in the midst of this, this so sets the tension and the reality of not only how we're supposed to think about our money and how maybe we're supposed to rethink how we handle our money, but also what we're supposed to do with our money. And it sets us on a course that we can either become owners or stewards, or managers. And you actually see the word manager right here in the text. So while you're flipping there, I'll kind of give you some interesting uh, little tidbits about this gospel specifically. Luke has already taught, previous to this, Luke has already taught that we should be content. He's already taught what contentment is. He's already taught that, that a man should, um, that, that a man should earn a good wage, and he should work for a good wage, and he's worthy of that wage. He's already taught that, that worldly wealth is temporary, something he's already taught in this gospel up to this point. He's also taught um, the idea and the reality that we ought not to cheat people financially and that we need to share with those in need. So he's already taught on these things. So now he gets into, um, into this teaching after, if you're reading the gospel, after a full teaching on those other things. So in Luke 16, this is... Um, right in a, a section of scripture that's probably familiar with, that's familiar to you, this passage maybe not, but the ones just previous to this are the, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the, the lost son, and the parable of the lost sheep. So if you're a, a Christian, you've been in church a while, you've probably heard those, but you may not have heard this passage. Now, I just want to caution you as I get into this passage, I'm not going to take another offering. I'm not going to hustle you, and I'm not even going to make you feel bad. 
Okay, that's none of those are my goal. If you feel something that you have to do and you're a Christian, just assume as a Christian, that's the Holy Spirit speaking to you, that I'm not trying to sneak into your wallet or your purse to try and take some money out, okay? We cool on that? All right, because I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna take an offering. I don't want this to be weird, but I also don't wanna escape the reality of what Jesus says in this text. But as you'll see right here in verse one, this text is meant to speak to Christians. So if you're not a Christian, we, we believe certain things about all people and, significant, and, and even about you if you're not a Christian. Maybe you've come in here because somebody's bribed you with lunch. Maybe you've come in here because of whatever reason and you're just kind of kicking the tires coming back to church. We totally understand that and we are so, so glad that you're here. So this teaching would be pertaining to Christians. If you're not a Christian, we believe there's other more significant things you need to be worried about before even working out this part about your money. So this is a, is a message to Christians. You're going to see that in verse 1. Here we go. Luke 16, verse 1 and 2 for right now. Jesus told his, what's the word? Disciples. There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions, so he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. So the audience for us would be disciples. Uh, Jesus would often teach a parable like this to a mass audience and he would speak it to an audience and and there would be people who really want to know about Jesus and there's other people who are just kind of curious about Jesus or maybe they've heard about his miracles or his teachings or maybe they just like the fact that he just continually sticks it to the Pharisees so they people people would just kind of join around and listen to the teachings of Jesus. But Jesus would use a parable like this one, and he would use a parable to kind of sift out the crowd. So as the disciples who were there in the inner circle that he's speaking to directly right now, the the, the disciples were the ones who would kind of lean in, and maybe they would ask some follow-up questions after a parable and say, Jesus, what did you mean? Like, I heard what you said, and you talked about this coin, and you talked about a lost son, but we're none of those. Like, my mom's over there. I just don't understand. And I haven't lost a coin. What are you talking about? So Jesus would, would leverage a parable to bring a deeper truth. But if you wanted to know the deeper truth, you had to lean in and maybe ask other significant questions. So there's going to be some other significant questions at the back end of this talk that will drive this content home. So Jesus would use a parable to kind of sift out those who wanted to lean in and those who were just kind of interested. And those who were kind of interested usually fell away. So he also mentions in this passage already, he he talks about the main two characters, the rich man and the manager. In their culture, something uh, that we don't really see in ours, uh, a rich man, for them, if they had olive oil or they had grain or they had land, that was currency. Um, They didn't really stockpile gold and silver. They had really no way of protecting it. Of course, they had no banks to put it in. They had no 401k, no pension plan. It was just... Uh, the way of the earth. So those things were currency, whether it was grain or olive oil or land. So a rich man would own a lot of land and then he would set out and he would hire managers and he would kind of divide up that land and a manager would take care of this section of land. It was a win-win because the manager needed a job. So now he's managing the rich man's property. And the idea is that the rich man could trust the manager that when the manager would make a decision about the land, it was something that the rich man would approve of. You're tracking with that so far? 
So the rich man and manager. So let me just, so we're clear. Did the manager actually own any land? No. The rich, the, 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 the manager didn't own any land whatsoever. The rich man owned the land. That's going to become important as we jump into verse 3. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job, and I'm not strong enough to, get, to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 400. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. So you should be asking yourself a question. Uh, he, He obviously is concerned about his job. Because the rich man told the manager, he's like, you're not going to have a job anymore. You haven't done a good job of managing the land. You're not doing a good job of managing my stuff. So now the manager's concerned. And did you see what happened in verse 3? It's right at the beginning of verse 3. He did what we all do when we get in a financial bind. Right at the beginning of verse 3. Look at it again. He talks to himself. Isn't that what we do? Like if we're honest, and oftentimes we don't want to talk about our financial woes with somebody else, so we just have this inner dialogue. We're, we're running low on money, so we try and work ourselves out of a bind. Well, I need some money. I know what I'll do. I know what I'll do. I'll go back to college. I'll get student loans. I'll have money now, and it'll pay for my education for later. And then I'll just worry about that student loan debt as we get up the road a little bit. I mean, Sally Mae will offer, we'll just give you money after money after money, check after check after check. That's what we do. We have this inner dialogue as to fix our problems now. Maybe for you, some of the inner dialogue is, well, I know the, I knew the, I know the truck needs four tires, but that's going to be about $800, and I don't have $800, so what am I going to do? And the temptation is we don't actually talk to anyone because we'd be ashamed if that secret was found out. So we create this inner, this inner monologue. How can we fix the problem ourselves? So then we go through scenarios, don't we? Well, I need four tires, but I can't get four tires. I would love for them to be new, but they can't be new. I know what I'll do. I'll buy two used tires, and then later on, I'll just get two other used tires. So we just have this inner dialogue. Maybe for you, maybe an inner dialogue is this. You promise your kid a vacation. You promised your spouse a vacation. You, you thought you were going to have the money for vacation. And you're like, yes, we're doing this. But yet you're looking at your bank register and you're like, ain't no money there. Ain't happening. So instead of telling your spouse or telling your kids, hey, we can't go on vacation this year, you create this inner monologue and you're like, how can I get myself out of this jam? I know what I'll do. I'll put it on the card. That way everybody wins until you start paying that debt back, and then all of a sudden, everybody loses, right? But that's the inner monologue. We just kind of talk to ourselves, and sometimes it's a dialogue. Sometimes we answer our, our own, uh, we try and just have these inner conversations to try and fix our own issue. That's exactly what he does here. But look what he says in verse 3. So he gets in a financial bind. He's like, uh-oh, I'm about to lose my job. I've got nothing, man. I'm like just a manager. I don't own anything. I have nothing. Then he says, I've basically got two options. He says, my master is taking away my job. Uh-oh. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. So he says, the path right now going forward isn't looking too great. Because I've been a manager. 
I haven't been a hole digger. Like that is a whole lot like, you know, manual labor. And I'm just not into the whole manual labor thing. I'm just not, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm like, I mean, I've never met somebody who likes to do that anyway. So he says, I have a real issue because I'm not really strong enough to dig. So that's a problem. I'm not strong enough for manual labor. But then he looks at the, at the other reality. And he says, ah, but I also don't want to beg. He says, so I can't dig and I'm too prideful to beg. What am I to do? So then he creates this scenario. It's like all of a sudden he rethinks money. He rethinks how to manage the rich man's stuff. So he creates these two scenarios with these two people. Did you see that in the text? So he calls in, this is in verse 5, he calls in two different debtors, one of which owed 800 gallons of olive oil. That is a lot of stinking olive oil, y'all. Like, he, he, he's, he's bringing in the debtor and he's like, 800 gallons of olive oil. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly. Sit down quickly. I love that. He's like, man, let's get this thing over with. We got we to gotta rock this on because if somebody finds out what's going on, there's going to be major issues. So he's a little nervous. He says, let's get this done quickly. He's like, uh, just sit down quickly, and, and we're just going to make it 400. You owed 800, but little nink, you know, a, a little wink and nod. We're going to just, we're going to call that uh, not 800. We're going to switch that around and make it 400. Then he asks a second, uh, how much do you owe? Well, it's a thousand bushels of wheat. I don't know what he's going to do with that, but he says, oh, just take your bill and let's just make it 800. So all of a sudden, the manager, who was a bad manager. He started to rethink how to manage. Now, it wasn't to benefit the rich man. It was to benefit himself. He's trying to get himself out of a bind. So some of the people who've studied this text prior to me, they kind of said that it was maybe a few different things. They thought, well, maybe he was just trying to embezzle. Because it would be really easy in their day because uh, an agreement, a financial agreement, would be um, just like a piece of paper and it would be sealed with wax. It was really easy to manipulate the wax and to kind of open it up and then to change the numbers. It would be no big deal. It's not like, you know, they had big pins like we do. You track what I'm saying? So it would be really easy to manipulate that. So they thought, well, maybe this guy's just trying to embezzle some stuff off the top. Maybe he's just like, we'll make that 1800 no problem. I'll just put a little in my pocket. After all, I'm going to be employed soon, and I need to take care of me. But yet, then some other people thought, well, maybe they would actually, he would be able to use this as a way of leveraging for blackmail later. So he'd be able to go back to these people and say, hey, remember when you owed 1000 I'm the one who made it 800 you owe me. You owe me. So maybe he'd be able to call in a favor with some blackmail later. We don't know what it could be. There's uh, honestly, uh, people have kind of thought different things about this specific text. Um, but we all totally agree that what he did was not right. Now, this is going to create a, a tremendous amount of tension because of the next verse we're going to read. The next verse, in verse 8, it creates really the tension for this whole passage. Because what he does, oh, I don't want to give it away. Let's go to verse 8. The master commended, 
commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind more than the people of the light. Whoa, 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 whoa. You should, right now, you should have like red flags that says, no, no, no. It sounded like he was trying to swindle the rich man. It sounded like, oh, yeah, he may have changed his way of thinking, but why would this be commendable? I want to tell you the meaning of two different words that will be significant for you to understand this passage. The first word is the word commended. It's the, it's the Greek word epineo, and it literally means praised or approved. Praised or approved. The second Greek word is the word shrewdly. We, we tend to think this word is a, just, it can only be a negative word, but can, it, it actually can mean more than what you may think. Shrewdly is the Greek word phronimos, meaning wisely or prudently. Wisely or prudently. I believe the reason why, and really the point of this, of this, this passage, one of the points of this passage rather, is this. Jesus is saying in this that, that the manager's behavior is commendable, not because he may have been blackmailing, not because he may have been embezzling, not because he was going to use that as a leverage point later, but because the manager started thinking differently about how to manage the rich man's stuff. He started to rethink how to manage the rich man's stuff. We need to rethink the way that we manage God's money. We, we are not the owners even of our money. We're not. We're, we're stewards or managers of God's money. We need to rethink how we utilize that. The point of this text in, in verse 8 is that the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Automatically, he started thinking differently about how he was managing. He's like, you were a terrible manager before, and I'm not saying I approve of your practices, but what I approve of is you've changed your thinking. But also, you see, at the back end of this, something that is verifiable in our culture, and you'll see why in just a moment. It says, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of the light. I told a story in the 915. It was great. Somebody gave me some really good uh, information. They did some study like after the message. It was great. But I told a story that to me, and this story I think will completely verify, and just not necessarily that Jesus' teaching needs to be verified, but I think it can be verified with our experience now. And whenever I was overseas and I went to Antalya, Turkey. Now, uh, there's really nothing necessarily good about Antalya, Turkey. Um, for me, I was looking forward to going there because at that time, I, I wanted to buy some Levi's 501 button fly jeans. Anybody hear me? You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Anyone else remember Levi's 501? Yeah, we got a few. Like it was the jam when I was in high school. I couldn't afford them. But, but I, I just had my eyes fixed on them. And like when I went to Turkey, I don't, I, don't know, I don't know how an American-made thing ends up in Turkey. I don't know. You work that one out yourself. But um, they were in Turkey, and I remember going through the market and looking at all that, and I just kind of being drawn back and saying, whoa, 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 how in the world did Levi's end up in Antalya, Turkey? In a related note, they cost too much still, and I didn't buy them. Total letdown. But... But that even wasn't the most significant thing uh, that I recognized in my times overseas. When I went to Greece, Italy, Spain, uh, Spain, I just made up a country, Spain, France, Spance, making that one up, Israel, 
Greece, the Bahamas, Puerto Rico, not a foreign country, but it's true there too. Every country that I've ever gone in, you could buy Coke. You could buy Coke. So one of the things I said at the 915 caused uh, this, this person to kind of do some study for me, and it was awesome. Um, and, and so I'm going to share it with you. And, and I thought to myself, why is it that Coke is available almost all around the world, but the gospel is not? Why is it that you can go into every country except two, two in the world, and you can buy Coke? You can go into every country except Cuba and except North Korea. Those are the only two countries in the world where you cannot buy Coke, Coca-Cola. The, the bottle, they still have bottles overseas. The bottle may be different. The cans will look different. It may actually taste a little bit different, but you can buy Coca-Cola all around the world except Cuba and North Korea but because of this awesome, um, because of this awesome study that was done in between the 9:15 and now, I'll share this with you. Although you can get Coke in every country except North Korea and Cuba, the gospel is closed in Albania, Angolia, Armenia, Benin. I don't know where that is. Bulgaria. There's a longer list of what I'm giving you. Cambodia, Congo, Czechoslovakia, East Germany, Estonia, Georgia. Not this one. The country. Hungary, uh, Latvia. Lithuania, Nicaragua, and maybe sounding the, maybe pronouncing these wrong, Moldova, Mongolia, Mozambique, Peru, Poland, Rwanda, Russia, Senegal, Tanzania, Uganda, Ukraine, Yugoslavia, Zara, and Zambia, and there's many more. All of those countries that I just named are closed to the gospel. If you have a Bible, you can be imprisoned or put to death. Not only if you just have a Bible, if you have Christian literature, you can be imprisoned or put to death. So now let's look again at what Jesus said in verse 8. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of the light. Why is it that you can get Coca-Cola all around the world except two countries, but yet there are an, a longer list than what I gave you. There's so many countries around the world where the gospel cannot penetrate openly. It's because we verify what Jesus just said, that the world just, they're shrewd in their dealings. They just, Coke, they just know how to get Coke everywhere. They just, it can just be anywhere. But yet, how is it that people of the light have not thought through the process? How can we get the gospel into these closed countries? How can, why is it that we can't get the gospel into these areas? Because Jesus says, because the people of the world are more shrewd in their dealings than Christians are in theirs. In other words, they're more wise for their cause than what we have wisdom for ours. That's why I love the, the story of uh, Ben Bixby that he came and spoke for us earlier this year. One of his uh, strategic business interests is this. He, he partners with people specifically in closed countries to, to make up print media and graphic, and graphic arts for churches, but he does it. They actually create the artwork in closed countries, 
And then he, he basically sends it electronically and he prints it in the States. But you see, that's just a creative way of now it's a closed country, but all of a sudden, everybody who has access to all of that material, talking about the gospel, talking about verses, talking about significant, even websites of churches, now in all of these closed countries, here through, through the wisdom, just shrewdly getting the gospel into these closed countries, all because somebody decided to think differently. Because Ben decided that I wasn't just going to work. I wasn't just going to have a business. I wanted to spread the gospel creatively. And I wanted to be shrewd in my dealing. I wanted to be wise and prudent in my dealings with churches. So it's not just a church thing. Now all of a sudden you have somebody who is so far from God. And a country is closed from the gospel. Now has complete access to scripture. It's awesome. It's awesome to me. We need to expand or pursue the kingdom of God with the same passion and energy as the world pursues profits and pleasure. We need to expand or pursue the kingdom of God with the same passion and energy as the world pursues profits and pleasure. Our life, if you're a follower of Christ, with your finances, you should be thinking through, continually thinking through, how can I leverage my finances for eternal things? How can I expand? How can I pursue the kingdom of God with my life, with, with the time that I have, with the gifts that I have, and with the money that I have? How can I leverage those things for eternal things of value? How can I do that? We should be cultivating thought. We should be asking the Holy Spirit of God to speak to us, to challenge the way that we spend our money, the things that we highly value. That I got right from that passage. Also, I, I believe this is consistent right with uh, specifically verse 3 through 7. It's where I got this idea from. When we manage God's money God's way, we make choices beyond now. And we build for things into eternity. When we manage God's money, God's way, we make choices beyond now. See, the, the, the manager, although he, he, he shrewdly acted, but he was doing things that obviously were, that didn't appear to be um, lawful or even, even right. But yet he started changing the way that he was thinking about his money. And then he started or the, the rich man's money and managing it differently. So his thoughts and actions were in alignment and he started to change. That's what we have to do. We have to understand that we're managing God's money, not our money. We manage God's money God's way. We make choices beyond now. That's what the manager did. He decided to start making decisions beyond now, but we need to build into eternity, into eternal things. When we do that, Managing money means sending some money back to honor God first before spending it on you. Christians, some of you may call it a tithe. Some of you just may call it generosity. Some of you may just call it an offering. I don't care what you call it as long as you do it. Managing means sending some money back to honor God. We believe that that's really the, the purpose of the local church is that you would take in, whether it's your generosity, offerings, or tithes, we can agree to disagree on whatever you want to call it as long as, what, as long as you do it, Christian. that You can maybe even disagree on certain amounts, and that's fine. We can disagree on those things. But if you want to manage God's money God's way, this is something you must do. 
And that's building into eternal things. That's forwarding the ministry of God. That's saying, I am not the be all, be all and end all of things. I want to invest in eternal things. And there's nothing more of eternal value than local churches. And those who are gospel-driven, I would say even not-for-profit organizations around the world. Those are the things that we have to be sending our money to. When you manage, manage money, manage God's money, God's way, some other things happen too. That means that you, that you will empower the money that you have instead of letting the consumption of it impair you. You will empower your money. You will send it out to do good works. Instead of just being consumed with having more and getting more and I've got to go out to eat and I've got to go on this trip and I've got to have the clothes and I've got to have my kids and all these activities and I've got to keep up with everyone else that's around me and I've got to have the new gun and the hunting lease and the car and the SUV. I've got to have all these things. It's saying, no, 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 no. Those are things that they will impair us because we'll be consumed with how to get them. Instead, if you want to manage God's money, God's way, you start thinking about it differently. Instead, you go through and you say, I'm going to empower my money and I'm going to send it out to do eternal things. Managing also means you're saving money for a rainy day when the car breaks down and you get a hole in your window and your kids need shoes and, and the roof is leaking. You, you, you send some money out to do eternal things, but you have to be wise. We have to be good stewards of our money, good managers of, of the money that God has given to us. And when we do so, we will put some back in savings because the roof is going to leak and the kids are going to need shoes, right? Those things are going to happen. That's just called life. So when you send some money out, you manage God's money God's way. You send some money out to, to forward and do the eternal th- things, added, what you see on the screen, just adding it to things that are eternal, making a difference, an eternal difference, shaping souls, feeding people and shaping souls, but then also saving some money because you know the rainy day is coming. And then lastly, when you manage God's money God's way, then you can spend it guilt-free. You can spend it guilt-free because you've already sent the money out. You've already honored God first with your money. You've already saved some money for the rainy day. And now, then you go through and you can spend money guilt-free. Doesn't that sound good? Guilt-free. Then you don't have to feel bad about going on that trip. You don't have to feel bad about, well, should, should we go out to eat? You shouldn't feel bad about those things. Those things can be great. But if you align yourself and you send whatever amount of money that needs to go out, that God would impress upon your heart to send out to to build into eternal things, and you save some money, and then you can go spend money guilt-free. Go have some fun with it. Let's press on into our verse. We're in the uh, the home stretch here. Verse 10. Actually, verse 9, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Coincides with what you see on the screen right now. Whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little can also, will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, how will you trust true riches. So there's tension there between worldly wealth and true riches. They're not the same thing. If you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, how, uh, who will give you property of your own? Verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one or love the other, or he would be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve 
both God and money. You can't serve both. You can't serve both. This is consistent with what Jesus said in Matthew 10, starting in verse 6, chapter 6, verse 21, where he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. One of my favorite verses in the scripture, this may seem weird to you, but one of my favorite verses in the scripture is Galatians 2.20. And it says this, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself up for me. This is the, this is the gospel truth, Christian. This is, this is why there shouldn't be such attention on when, when money is brought about in, in the house of God to the people of God, you shouldn't have such tension with it because Scripture clearly talks about it. And if you've already given your life to Christ, you've already given him all of your life. You've already said, you know what? I'm nothing without you, Jesus. I'm simply stewarding or managing the life you've given me and the time you've given me and and the relationships you've given me and the money you've given me. So if we are, if we no longer live, but Christ lives in us, then all of a sudden his cause means more than our happiness. His cause means more than our happiness. Some of us have to rethink the way that, that we or just rethink our money, and then we need to base some action on that new thought about our money. I want to ask you this question. Would your bank register show that you're acting like a manager or an owner? Like ultimately, that's the tattletale, isn't it? I mean, other than your spouse, nobody's looking at your bank register but you. But I do want you to know that God knows where your treasure lies. Would your bank register say, you know what, my treasure is eating and out. It, you know, it's, it's trips. My, my treasure is fine dining. When I could do fast food, I don't know. I just like the finer things in life. Maybe what, what the bank register for you would tell, it'd be, the, be the tattletale of you to say, you know what, I like expensive cars because my car payment is, is this amount of money. And I just, I can't give to anyone else because I'm giving to this car payment. What is it that your bank register would tell about you, either that you're a manager or an owner? I think you have to really wrestle with that, Christian. I think ultimately you have to go through and to submit to whatever it is that God would have for you. I want to give you some takeaways. One of these will not be on the screen. But I'm going to give you some takeaways, and then I'm going to give you one final question that I think is, is a, it's an exciting question. One of the takeaways is this, honor God with your finances before you feel ready. One of the biggest things that people say is, you know what, I can't give because I just don't have enough. What Jesus said in here is, if you're faithful with a little, you can be faithful with much. So if you just have a little, just be faithful with a little. Just be faithful with a little. The idea is being faithful. I'm not, I don't believe God's sitting there and he's, he's, he's looking at, at all the numbers and saying, well, you trusted me with 9.9%, but not 10, so your offering's not valid. Trust me, God's not doing that. He doesn't actually need our money. He, he all, just wants our heart. But he knows where our treasure is, there our heart will also be. So he knows the tension that we live in. He knows the difficulty. So, so if you feel like you're not ready to start honoring God with your finances, know that you're never gonna be ready. You're never going to feel ready. 
Just do it. Honor God with your finances before you feel ready. Feel being the operative word. Second one is this. Money is an indicator of what you truly treasure in life. It's the indicator of what you truly treasure in life. How you spend it, how you pursue it, are you thankful for it? Are you consumed with getting more of it? This one's not on the screen, but it's really the bottom line for today. You manage financially to leverage eternally. You manage financially so you can leverage eternally. You manage your, 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 fan, your finances well. I had some friends that, that I know of that are they're not here at the church, so don't worry about who it is here. It's not, they don't even live in this state. I have some friends of mine. They've made some financial mistakes in the past, and, the, and they make a fair amount of money, but they've made some financial mistakes in the past. And now their, their goal right now is they just want to, they want to be extravagant givers. So what they're doing now is they're paying down debts so that in, in their twilight years that they don't just have just expansive vacations and trips. They want to be extravagant givers because they get this. They get this. That you have to manage financially to leverage eternally. They want to be extravagant givers to those in need. They want to be extravagant givers to, to the people who are doing good work around the world. They want to be extravagant, not so they can pat themselves on the back, but because they see a need and they realize that now they're having to manage things differently than what they have before because there, there are eternal consequences for how they spend their money. Financial stewardship is the path to life's greatest contributions. I think this is actually wrong and this is on me. I don't think it is the path. It is a path to life's greatest contributions. So if you're going to write that down, please write it down correctly. Financial stewardship is a path. It's not the path. It's a path to life's greatest contributions. It takes money to do ministry. It takes money to to feed orphans. It takes money to care for widows. It takes money to to do eternal, the things that have eternal value. It takes Money, So financial stewardship is a big deal and it is a path to life's greatest contributions. And, and let me just, I guess, make you dream a little bit with this last question and then I'm going to be through. Last question is this. What would a world look like if just the Christians, just the Christians, decided that they would live like managers of God's money? Like, dream with me for a bit, would you? Like, what would that world look like? See, I think it just if if just the Christians decided, you know what, I, I'm not going to be, I, I'm not going to live like an owner anymore. I'm going to be a manager of of God's blessings. I'm gonna, I want to be an, a manager of God's finances. I want to honor God with my fan, my finances. I want to honor God's money, God's way. And here's how I'm going to do that. And all of a sudden, I think that there would be there would be no need for um, for people having to ask for money to feed orphans. Because all of a sudden, we would have already gotten this right. That the people of God would have already rallied around a cause that is so near and dear to God's heart that we would have rallied around that. So that there would be no hungry orphans. There would be no educational issues in Rwanda. Uh, CASA wouldn't need volunteers. And, and they wouldn't even need state-funded money. They wouldn't even need it because the church would step up, up and they would meet all of those needs. All of a sudden, there would be no missionary who comes through the church and have to ask for anything. All they would say is, thank you. 
Maybe then, maybe then, people would start dreaming like my buddy Ben does. Maybe they would start dreaming and they would start being more shrewd, more wise, more prudent in, in the way that they're managing God's money and saying, you know what, I, I want to I not just have a business, but I want to use this business. Think, think of what work could be done if they didn't have to worry about funding. So all of a sudden, the gospel could be everywhere. Maybe the gospel could be everywhere like Coke. Maybe. But also into North Korea and Cuba. I believe it can. When the people of God decide that they want to manage financially to leverage eternally, souls are changed. Cultures are changed. Social systems are, are done away with because the church would have simply stepped up to do what God has already told us to do. Let's pray together. Jesus, you are awesome. All of us who call themselves Christians, we've been crucified. Our lives are no longer lived out for us, but lived out for you. That's true relationally. That's true with our gifts and talents. That's true of our time. That's true of our lives. And that's true of our finances. Lord, it's interesting when you run through passages like this because it, it sits, you sit back and you see something that it seems to be negative, but, but the overlying principle is he just changed the way that he was handling and managing. God, wake us up so we can become better managers or handlers of your money. Please grant us the grace that we need in the times that we fail, because we will. But let us never walk away from the truth that we need to lead us and guide us in all things. We praise you, Jesus. Amen. Amen.